Podmoth. Hello, dear listeners, and welcome back to another episode of the Identity Podcast, your bi-weekly foray into the weird, wonky, and sometimes downright spooky. In this episode, we tackle part two of The Phantom Rickshaw by Rudyard Kipling. If you haven't yet listened to part one, I'd suggest starting with the previous episode, otherwise you'll be terribly confused. Just a reminder that this podcast is a proud member of the Podmoth Media Network. For more awesome shows, head on over to podmoth.network. This story and books within this collection are public domain, free to use and reuse, and are provided by the Library of Congress. And now, on with the show. I was to dine with the Mannerings that night, and had barely time to canter home to dress. On the road to Elysium Hill, I overheard two men talking together in the dusk. It's a curious thing, said one, how completely all trace of it has disappeared. You know, my wife was insanely fond of the woman, never could see anything in her myself, and wanted me to pick up her old rickshaw and coolies if they were to be got for love or money. Morbid sort of fancy, I call it, but I've got to do what the Meshabib tells me. Would you believe that the man she hired it from tells me that four of the men, they were brothers, died of cholera on the way to Hardwar? Poor devils. And the rickshaw had been broken up by the man himself. Told me he never used a dead Meshabib's rickshaw. Spoilt his luck. Queer notion, wasn't it? Fancy poor little Mrs. Wessington spoiling anyone's luck except her own. I laughed aloud at this point, and my laugh jarred on me as I uttered it. So there were ghosts of rickshaws after all, and ghostly employments of the other world. How much did Mrs. Wessington give her men? What were their hours? Where did they go? And for visible answer to my last question, I saw the infernal thing blocking my path in the twilight. The dead travel fast and by shortcuts unknown to ordinary coolies. I laughed aloud a second time and checked my laughter suddenly, for I was afraid I was going mad. Mad to a certain extent I must have been, for I recollect that when I reined in my horse at the head of the rickshaw, I politely wished Mrs. Wessington good evening. Her answer was one I knew only too well. I listened to the end and replied that I had heard it all before, but should be delighted if she had anything further to say. Some malignant devil stronger than I must have entered into me that evening, 
for I have a dim recollection of talking the commonplaces of the day for five minutes to the thing in front of me. Mad as a hatter, poor devil. Or drunk. Max, try and get him to come home. Surely that was not Miss Wessington's voice. The two men had overheard me speaking to empty air and had returned to look at me. They were very kind and considerate, and from their words evidently gathered that I was extremely drunk. I thanked them and confusedly cantered away to my hotel, there changed, and arrived at the Mannerings ten minutes late. I pleaded the darkness of the night as an excuse, was rebuked by Kitty for my unlover-like tardiness, and sat down. The conversation had already become general, and I was under cover of it. I was addressing some tender small talk to my sweetheart when I was aware that, at the further end of the table, a short red-whiskered man was describing with much broidery his encounter with a mad unknown that evening. A few sentences convinced me that he was repeating the incident of a half hour ago. In the middle of the story, he looked for a round of applause, as professional storytellers do, caught my eye, and straightaway collapsed. There was a moment's awkward silence, and the red-whiskered man muttered something to the effect that he had forgotten the rest, thereby sacrificing a reputation as a good storyteller which he'd built up for six seasons past. I blessed him from the bottom of my heart and went on with my fish. In the fullness of time, that dinner came to an end, and with genuine regret, I tore myself away from Kitty. As certain as I was of my own existence, that it would be waiting for me outside the door. The red-whiskered man, who I'd been introduced to as Dr. Heatherly of Simla, volunteered to bear me company as far as our roads lay together. I accepted his offer with gratitude. My instinct had not deceived me. It lay in readiness at the mall, and in what seemed devilish mockery of our ways, with a lighted headlamp. The red-whiskered man went to the point at once, in a manner that showed me he'd been thinking over it almost all dinner time. I say, Panze, what deuce was the matter with you this evening at the Elysium Road? The suddenness of the question wrenched an answer from me before I was aware. That, said I, pointing to it, that may either be DT or eyes, for aught I know. Now, you don't liquor. I saw as much at dinner, so it can't be DT. There's nothing whatever where you were pointing, though. You're sweating and trembling with fright, like a scared pony. Therefore, I conclude that it's eyes, and I ought to understand all about them. Come along home with me. I'm in the Blessington Lower Road. To my intense delight, the rickshaw, instead of waiting for us to keep about twenty yards ahead, and this too, whether we walked, trotted, or cantered. In the course of that long night ride, I had told my companion about as much as I have told you here. Well, you've spoilt one of the best tales I'd ever laid tongue to, said he, but I'll forgive you for the sake of what you've gone through. Now come home and do what I tell you. 
And when I've cured you, young man, let this be a lesson to you to steer clear of women and indigestible food till the day of your death. The rickshaw kept steadily in front, and my red-whiskered friend seemed to derive great pleasure from my account of its exact whereabouts. Eyes, Pan say, all eyes, brain, and stomach. And the greatest of these three is stomach. You've too much conceited brain, too little stomach, and thoroughly unhealthy eyes. Get your stomach straight, and the rest follows. And all that's French for a liver pill. I'll take sole medical charge of you from this hour, for you're too interesting a phenomenon to be passed over. By this time, we were deep in the shadow of the Blessington Lower Road, and the rickshaw came to a dead stop under a pine-clad overhanging shale cliff. Instinctively, I halted too, giving my reason. Heatherly rapped out an oath. Now, if you think I'm going to spend a cold night on the hillside for the sake of a stomach-come-brain-come-eye illusion, Lord have mercy, what is that? There was a muffled report, a blinding smother of dust just in front of us, a crack, the noise of rent boughs, and about ten yards off the cliffside, pines, undergrowth, and all, slid down into the road below, completely blocking it up. The uprooted trees swayed and tottered for a moment like drunken giants in the gloom, and then fell prone among their fellows with a thunderous crash. Our two horses stood motionless and sweating with fear. As soon as the rattle of falling earth and stone had subsided, my companion muttered, Man, if we'd gone forward, we should have been ten feet deep in our graves by now. There are more things in heaven and earth. Come home, Panze, and thank God. I want to drink badly. We retraced our way over the church ridge and arrived at Dr. Heatherly's house shortly after midnight. His attempt towards my cure commenced almost immediately, and for a week I never left his sight. Many a time in the course of that week I did bless the good fortune which had thrown me into contact with Simla's best and kindest doctor. Day by day my spirits grew lighter and more equable. Day by day, too, I became more and more inclined to fall in with Heatherly's spectral illusion theory, implicating eyes, brain, and stomach. I wrote to Kitty, telling her that a slight sprain caused a fall from my horse and kept me indoors for a few days, and that I should be recovered before she had time to regret my absence. Heatherly's treatment was simple to a degree. It consisted of liver pills, cold water baths, and strong exercise, taken in the dusk or at early dawn. For, as he sagely observed, a man with a sprained ankle doesn't walk a dozen miles a day, and your young woman might be wondering if she saw you. At the end of the week, after much examination of pupil and pulse and strict injunctions as to diet and pedestrianism, Heatherly dismissed me as brusquely as he'd taken charge of me. Here is his parting benediction. Man, I certify to your mental cure, and that's as much as to say I've cured most of your bodily ailments. Now get your traps out of this as soon as you can, and be off and make love to Miss Kitty. I was endeavoring to express my thanks for his kindness, but he caught me short. Don't think I did this because I like you. 
I gather that you've behaved like a blackguard all through, but all the same you're a phenomenon, and as queer a phenomenon as you are a blackguard. Now, go out and see if you can find the eyes, brain, and stomach business again. I'll give you a lack for each time you see it. Half an hour later, I was in the Mannering's drawing room with Kitty, drunk with the intoxication of present happiness, and the foreknowledge that I should never more be troubled with its hideous presence. Strong in the sense of my newfound security, I proposed a ride at once, and by preference, a canter around Jacko. Never have I felt so well, so overladen with vitality, mere animal spirits as I did on the afternoon of the 30th of April. Kitty was delighted at the change in my appearance and complimented me on it in her delightfully frank and outspoken manner. We left the Mannering's house together, laughing and talking, and cantered along the Chota Simla Road, as of old. I was in haste to reach the Sanjali Reservoir, and there make my assurance doubly sure. The horses did their best, but seemed all too slow to my impatient mind. Kitty was astonished at my boisterousness. "'Why, Jack,' she cried at last, "'you're behaving like a child. What are you doing?' We were just below the convent, and from sheer wantonness I was making my whaler plunge and curve it across the road as I tickled it with the loop of my riding whip. "'Doing,' I answered. "'Nothing, dear, that's just it. "'If you'd been doing nothing for a week except to lie up, "'you'd be as riotous as I. "'Singing and murmuring in your feastful mirth, "'joying to feel yourself alive. "'Lord over nature, lord over the visible earth, "'lord of the senses five. "'My quotation was hardly out of my lips "'before we rounded the corner above the convent. "'And a few yards further on, "'I could see across to San Jowley. In the center of the level road stood the black and white liveries, the yellow-paneled rickshaw of Mrs. Keith Wessington. I pulled up, looked, rubbed my eyes, and I believe must have said something. The next thing I knew I was lying face downward in the road with Kitty kneeling above me in tears. Has it gone, child? I gasped. Kitty only wept more bitterly. Has what gone? Jack, dear, what does it all mean? There must be a mistake somewhere, Jack, a hideous mistake. Her last words brought me to my feet, mad raving for the time being. Yes, there is a mistake somewhere, I repeated. A hideous mistake. Come look at it. I have an indistinct idea that I dragged Kitty by the wrist along the road up to where it stood, and I implored her for pity's sake to speak to it to tell it that we were betrothed, and that neither death nor hell could break the die between us. And Kitty only knows how much more to the same effect. Now and again I appealed passionately to the terror in the rickshaw to bear witness to all I had said, and to release me from a torture that was killing me. As I talked, I suppose I must have told Kitty of all my relations with Mrs. Wessington, for I saw her listen intently with white face and blazing eyes. Thank you, Mr. Panse, she said. That's quite enough. Bring my horse. The grooms had come up with the recaptured horses, 
And as Kitty sprang into her saddle, I caught hold of the bridle, entreating her to hear me out and to forgive. My answer was the cut of her riding whip across my face from mouth to eye, and a word or two of farewell that even now I cannot write down. So I judged, and judged rightly, that Kitty knew all, and I staggered back to the side of the rickshaw. My face was cut and bleeding, and the blow of the riding whip had raised a livid blue wheel on it. I had no self-respect. Just then, Heatherly, who must have been following Kitty and me at a distance, cantered up. Doctor, I said, pointing to my face. Here is Miss Mannering's signature to my order of dismissal, and I'll thank you for that lock as soon as convenient. Heatherly's face, even in my abject misery, moved me to laugh. I'll stake my professional reputation, he began. Don't be a fool, I whispered. I've lost my life's happiness, and you'd better take me home. As I spoke, the rickshaw was gone. Then I lost all knowledge of what was passing. The crest of the jacko seemed to heave and roll like the crest of a cloud and fall upon me. Seven days later, on the 7th of May, that is to say, I was aware that I was lying in Heatherly's room and weak as a little child. Heatherly was watching me intently from behind the papers on his writing table. His first words were not very encouraging, but I was too far spent to be much moved by them. Here Miss Kitty has sent back your letters. You corresponded a good deal, you young people. Here's a pack that looks like a ring, and a cheerful sort of note from Mannering Papa, which I've taken the liberty of reading and burning. The old gentleman is not pleased with you. And Kitty? I asked Dolly. Rather more drawn than her father from what she says. By the same token, you must have been letting out any number of queer reminiscences just before I met you says that a man who would have behaved to a woman as you did to Mrs. Wessington ought to kill himself out of sheer pity for his kind. She's a hot-headed little virago, your mash. We'll have it, too, that you're suffering from D.T. when that row on the Jacko Road turned up. Says she'll die before she ever speaks to you again. I groaned and turned over on my other side. Now, you've got your choice, my friend. This engagement has to be broken off, and the Mannerings don't want it to be too hard on you. Was it broken through DT or epileptic fits? Sorry I can't offer you a better exchange, unless you'd prefer hereditary insanity. Say the word and I'll tell him it's fits. All Simla knows about that scene on the Ladies' Mile. Come, I'll give you five minutes to think over it. During those five minutes, I believe I explored thoroughly the lowest circles of the inferno which it is permitted for a man to tread on earth. And at the same time, I myself was watching myself faltering through the dark labyrinths of doubt, misery, and utter despair. I wondered, as Heatherly in his chair might have wondered, which dreadful alternative I should adopt— Presently, I heard myself answering in a voice that I hardly recognized. They're confoundedly peculiar about morality in these parts. 
Give him fits, Heatherly, and my love. Now let me sleep a little longer. Then my two selves joined, and it was only I, half-crazed, devil-driven I, that tossed in my bed tracing step-by-step the history of the past month. But I am in Simla, I kept repeating to myself. I, Jack Panse, am in Simla, and there are no ghosts here. It's unreasonable of that woman to pretend there are. Why couldn't Agnes have left me alone? I never did her any harm. It must just as well have been me as Agnes. Only I'd never have come back on purpose to kill her. Why can't I be left alone, left alone and happy? It was high noon when I first awoke, and the sun was low in the sky before I slept. Slept as a tortured criminal sleeps on his rack, too worn to feel further pain. Next day I could not leave my bed. Heatherly told me in the morning that he had received an answer from Mr. Mannering, and that thanks to his, Heatherly's, friendly offices, the story of my affliction had traveled through the length and breadth of Simla, where I was, on all sides, much pitied. And that's rather more than you deserve, he concluded pleasantly, though the Lord knows you've been going through a pretty severe mill. Never mind, we'll cure you yet, you perverse phenomena. I declined firmly to be cured. You've been much too good to me already, old man, said I but I don't think I need trouble you further. In my heart, I knew nothing Heatherly would do could lighten the burden that had been laid upon me. With that knowledge came also the sense of hopeless, impotent rebellion against the unreasonableness of it all. There were scores of men no better than I, whose punishments had at least been reserved for another world, and I felt it was bitterly, cruelly unfair that I alone should have been singled out for this hideous fate. This mood would in time give place to another where it seemed that the rickshaw and I were the only realities in a world of shadows, that Kitty was a ghost, that Mannering, Heatherly, and all the other men and women I knew were all ghosts of the great gray hills themselves, but vain shadows devised to torture me. From mood to mood I tossed backwards and forwards, for seven weary days, my body growing daily stronger and stronger until the bedroom looking-glass told me that I had returned to everyday life and that I was as other men once more. Curiously enough, my face showed no signs of the struggle I had gone through. It was pale indeed, but as expressionless and commonplace as ever. I had expected some permanent alteration, visible evidence of the disease that was eating me away, but I found nothing. On the 15th of May, I left Heatherly's house at 11 o'clock in the morning, and the instinct of the bachelor drove me to the club. There I found every man knew my story as told by Heatherly, and was, in clumsy fashion, abnormally kind and attentive. Nevertheless, I recognized that for the rest of my natural life I should be among, but not of, my fellows, and I envied very bitterly indeed the laughing coolies of the mall below. I lunched at the club, and at four o'clock walked aimlessly down to the mall in the vague hope of meeting Kitty. Close to the bandstand, 
The black and white liveries joined me, and I heard Mrs. Wessington's old appeal at my side. I had been expecting this ever since I came out, and was only surprised at her delay. The phantom rickshaw and I went side by side along the Chota Simla road in silence. Close to the bazaar, Kitty and a man on horseback overtook and passed us. For any sign she gave, I may have been a dog in the road. She did not even pay me the compliment of quickening her pace, though the rainy afternoon had served for an excuse. So Kitty and her companion, and I in my ghostly light of love, crept around Jacko and Couples. The road was streaming with water, the pines dropped off like roof pipes on the rocks below, and the air was full of fine driving rain. Two or three times I found myself saying to myself, almost aloud, I'm Jack Panze, on leave at Simla. At Simla. Everyday, ordinary Simla. I mustn't forget that. I mustn't forget that. Then I would try to recollect some of the gossip I'd heard of the club, the prices of so-and-so's horses, anything, in fact, that related to the workaday Anglo-Indian word I knew so well. I even repeated the multiplication table rapidly to myself to make quite sure that I wasn't taking leave of my senses. It gave me much comfort and must have prevented me from hearing Mrs. Wessington for a time. Once more, I wearily climbed the convent slope and entered the level road. Here, Kitty and the man started off at a canter, and I was left alone with Mrs. Wessington. Agnes, said I, will you pull back your hood and tell me what it all means? The hood dropped noiselessly, and I was face to face with my dead and buried mistress. She was wearing the dress in which I had last seen her alive, carried the same tiny handkerchief in her right hand, and the same card case in her left. A woman eight months dead with a card case. I had to pin myself down on the multiplication table and set both hands on the stone parapet of the road to assure myself that that at least was real. Agnes, I repeated, for pity's sake, tell me what it all means. Mrs. Wessington leaned forward with that odd, quick turn of the head I used to know so well and spoke. If my story had not already so madly overleaped the bounds of all human belief, I should apologize to you now. As I know that no one, no, not even Kitty, for whom it is written as some sort of justification for my conduct, will believe me. I will go on. Mrs. Wessington spoke, and I walked with her from the San Jolly Road to the turning below the Commander-in-Chief's house, as I might walk by the side of any living woman's rickshaw, deep in conversation. The second and most tormenting of my moods of sickness had suddenly laid hold upon me, and like the Prince of Tennyson's poem, I seemed to move amid a world of ghosts. There had been a garden party at the Commander-in-Chief's, and we too joined the crowd of homeward-bound folk. As I saw them, then it seemed that they were the shadows, impalpable, fantastic shadows, that divided from Miss Wessington's rickshaw to pass through. What we said during the course of that weird interview, I cannot, indeed, and I dare not tell. 
Heather Lee's comment would have been a short laugh and a remark that I had been mashing a brain-eye-stomach chimera. It was a ghastly and yet, in some indefinable way, a marvelously dear experience. Could it be possible, I wondered, that I was in this life to woo a second time the woman I had killed by my own neglect and cruelty? I met Kitty on the homeward road, a shadow among shadows. If I were to describe all the incidents of the next fortnight in their order, my story would never come to an end, and your patience would be exhausted. Morning after morning and evening after evening, the ghostly rickshaw and I used to wander through Simla together. Wherever I went, the four black and white liveries followed me and bore me company to and from my hotel. At the theater, I found them among the crowd of yelling Jahampanis, outside the club veranda after a long evening of whist, at the birthday ball waiting patiently for my reappearance, and in broad daylight when I went calling. Save that it cast no shadow, the rickshaw was in every respect as real to look upon as one of wood and iron. More than once indeed, I have had to check myself from warning some hard-riding friend against cantering over it. More than once I have walked down the mall, deep in conversation with Mrs. Wessington, to the unspeakable amazement of passers-by. Before I had been out about a week, I learned that the fit theory had been discarded in favor of insanity. However, I made no change in my mode of life. I called, rode, and dined out as freely as ever. I had a passion for the society of my kind, which I'd never felt before. I hungered to be among the realities of life, and at the same time I felt vaguely unhappy when I had been separated too long from my ghostly companion. It would be almost impossible to describe my varying moods from the 15th of May up to today. The presence of the rickshaw filled me in turns with horror, blind fear, a dim sort of pleasure, and utter despair. I dared not to leave Simla, and I knew that my stay there was killing me. I knew, moreover, that it was my destiny to die slowly, and a little every day. My only anxiety was to get penance over as quietly as might be. Alternately, I hungered for a sight of Kitty and watched her outrageous flirtations with my successor, to speak more accurately, my successors, with amused interest. She was as much out of my life as I was out of hers. By day, I wandered with Mrs. Wessington almost content. By night, I implored heaven to let me return to the world as I used to know it. Above all these varying moods lay the sensation of dull, numbing wonder. That the seen and the unseen should mingle so strangely on this earth, only to hound one poor soul to its grave. August 27th. Heatherly has been indefatigable in his attendance on me, and only yesterday told me I ought to send in an application for sick leave. An application to escape the company of a phantom. A request that the government would graciously permit me to get rid of five ghosts and an airy rickshaw by going to England. Heatherly's preposition moved me to almost hysterical laughter. I told him that I should await the end quietly at Simla, and I am sure that the end is not far off. Believe me that I dread its advent more than any word can say, 
and I torture myself nightly with a thousand speculations as to the manner of my death. Shall I die in my bed decently, and as an English gentleman should die? Or in one last walk on the mall? Will my soul be wrenched from me to take its place forever and ever by the side of that ghastly phantasm? Shall I return to my old lost allegiance in the next world, or shall I meet Agnes loathing her and bound to her side through all eternity? Shall we two hover over the scene of our lives until the end of time? As the day of my death draws nearer, the intense horror that all living flesh feels toward escaped spirits from beyond the grave grows more and more powerful. It is an awful thing to go down quick among the dead and scarcely one half of your life completed. It is a thousand times more awful to wait, as I do in your midst, for I know not what unimaginable terror. Pity me at least on the score of my delusion, for I know that you will never believe what I have written here. Yet as surely as ever a man was done to death by the powers of darkness, I am that man. Injustice too, pity her. For as surely as ever a woman was killed by a man, I killed Mrs. Wessington. And the last portion of my punishment is even now upon me. That's it for this week, dear listeners. I hope you enjoyed this classic haunted tale. Tune in next time for more tales of the creepy, weird, and paranormal. Until then, stay spooky. The Identity Podcast is brought to you by host Janine Mercer, and the music was created using GarageBand. Find The Odd Pod on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at IdentityPod, and on Facebook as The Identity Podcast. A transcript of this episode will be available at theidentitypodcast.wordpress.com. Got a paranormal experience to share? Send those along to theidentitypodcast at gmail.com. If you liked what you heard, please take a moment to mash that subscribe button and leave me a five-star review. Don't forget to tell your friends, family, and coworkers about this podcast. Every little bit helps. Honest conversations with interesting people. Hi, I'm Mike from the Genuine Chit Chat Podcast, and I talk to a wide variety of guests across an eclectic range of interesting topics. People I've spoken to include a magister from the Church of Satan, a blind Australian filmmaker, a puppeteer from Labyrinth and Dark Crystal, and I also speak to musicians of all kinds of genres, authors, actors, podcasters. Really, there is no limit to who I speak to, and the subject matter is endless. So if you believe in the art of conversation and want to hear different people talking about their passions, then this is the perfect show for you. You can find Genuine Chit Chat anywhere you listen to podcasts, and there's some video versions on YouTube, so there's no reason not to tune in.